The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel is Pat Scott. Hey, Pat. Hi, greetings and salutations. Folks, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Trek. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Trek. So, uh... Today's main topic is an interesting one that was provided by uh, our very own Jack Barazzini. Uh, I asked for some suggestions and he threw this one up there. And it's kind of interesting because it's one I, I haven't been, I hadn't dug into a lot. Uh, but uh, the topic is AI art generators. And you may have seen online somewhere in a lot of uh, people's either Twitter threads or Facebook threads, these these strange pictures, usually in grids of four, where th- there's a prompt, you know, Elvis is Santa Claus, uh, Pope Francis playing soccer at the World Cup, you know, like these weird things. And then this strange uh, artwork that looks kind of surrealistic, uh, depicting these, the you know, art from these prompts that are made by uh, these AI generators. And there's a few different ones out there. And I think the most famous one right now is called Dali, D-A-L-L dash E, you know, like Dali, the Salvador Dali, but also Wally, the robot. So that's a sort of mashup of those. Uh, but there are others out there, the crayon and a couple others. And what they are, they're AI generated um, artwork. Uh, I think the, the uh, it's generative artificial intelligences. And uh, they don't just do, Art. They also do uh, the uh, words, the written word. They'll they'll do texts. If you give them a prompt, they'll they'll write out a text. So there's some questions that arise over this sort of thing. Pat, have you seen these? Have you uh, played with these at all? Uh, I hadn't before Jack sent out the stuff. Uh, the only thing I do remember is Stephen and I were entranced for a while by something that was called deep deep dreaming. I think it was. Uh huh. A, it was early, uh, an early attempt at this, and it was really very surrealistic, yeah, very trippy. <laughs> yeah, almost looked like somebody maybe just transcribed their dreams. <laughs> yes, yes, and, that's and that the, was kind of what it was for. Yeah, yeah well, and that's what they t- they say is that these are still very early versions of this. These these AI models or machine learning models is maybe a better uh, way way to describe them. They're still very primitive, but yet. They can come up with some amazing things. I've been playing with one called Mid Journey lately uh, that works through um, a Discord, and you you go in and you type, uh, you know, ha- um, slash imagine, and then your prompt, and you can be very detailed. Uh, I did one that I said, um, "Knight in shining armor discovering a treasure chest full of secrets of technology in a fantasy castle." And then I said, ultra realistic. So you can say in the the style you want it in. You want it in a cartoon style. You want it in um, Picasso style. You want it graffiti style. So you can even give it a style. And it comes up. It'll generate four different images. That and then you can tell it, oh, do more. Like make that one more um, upscale. It like make it bigger and more detailed. Or do variations on that one. And and you could really kind of dig into it and. Uh, it's interesting. This one is, it makes some pretty interesting stuff. In fact, I think I'm going to use for the cover art for this episode, the, one of the images that it generated, because it's kind of funky. It's it very, it looks like a 1970s sci-fi uh, novel cover. If you, oh, if you've wow. ever seen those. <laughs> like an Andre Norton. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> or it's, they're, they're kind of, it's, they're kind of often trippy and wild. Uh, so there are questions that come up about this. There are various questions that come up. Um, one of the questions that is raised is, uh, is the, is the, are these systems, uh, these AIs, these creative AIs, are they stealing other people's art? Because in order for them to work, they have to be trained on artwork that's already out there. And they take, uh, you know, they, every 
thing you can find in every museum book and every, you know, picture online, every everything you can find. And they feed it in to the machine and it learns all about these different artworks. And that's how it learns to generate it. And so some people are asking, well, is it just stealing from all of these artists to create its art? But artists have done that for years. I mean, you see people sitting in the the Louvre, you know, sketching off of others. I mean, this is a, a traditional part of art is uh, homage to other artists and their ideas right. and making it your own, not not obviously copying it. So right. I, I kind of dis- discount that one. Or even to go further, not even just like copying, but like even if you're making something new, you're still learning based on what every artist before you has done. You're not recreating painting from scratch by becoming an artist or, you know, learning how to write or playing music, you know, or writing music, you know, music may actually be even better because, you know, the, those chords, somebody invented that chord or that, that little uh, trill of music before you, but you've used it in a new way. You've incorporated it into your, into your art. So, yeah, there's only so many notes where at least with painting and sculpting, there's a whole lot of more medium. So I would yeah. think that in the world of art, this would be less of a issue. Now, the, another question that arises out of it is who's the artist? The person who writes the prompt or the AI that creates it or the programmer who creates the AI? Like who who is the artist? Who Whose artwork is it? What do you think? I feel like it's a collaborative thing where it's like you walk into a library and you do some research and you pull stuff together. You know, you're, I guess, uh, standing on the shoulders of other uh, authors. Mm -hmm. And the same thing here is I figure it's a collaborative thing. One person takes the idea and it gets used, you know, uh, manipulated with some tools. And yeah, the programmer has some creativity in there too, but he's not actually there at the moment. It's just his platform. So I kind of figure like it's collaborative, but there's, then you say who owns it. Right. Can I trademark this and put this in a, you know, can you trademark the one you came up with or is it open source? Well, and that's very interesting because some of these AI generators, some of these specific systems, they specifically give you the right. They they enumerate that you have the right to commercialize whatever they whatever you get from the system. That's good advertising too yeah. for their system, <laughs> right? And and you know it's helping. You're helping train their system, so all of these prompts is is training it too. Um, but it's also it may be that they're giving you a right, not that you had that right to to begin with. If you know what I mean, uh, by the fact that they are telling you that you have a right to commercialize it, doesn't necessarily mean that you had that right to begin with. And I was thinking, like right. when you talk about uh, it being collaborative, some people might say, "Well, how is this different from?" You know, when you're walking in a park or like a square and you come upon a caricaturist and you give him the prompt and he comes up with the, the caricature from that, whose work is that? It's not really a collaborative work. I Yeah, I gave him a prompt, but he's the artist. He drew the thing. Um, so in that sense, I have a role to, that I play, I guess, sort of a patronage role, like yeah. patrons of the arts. Uh, it's an interesting question. It, and are eight, can an AI be an artist? You know, th- that's another. Well, and it's almost a little bit like ghostwriting, mm-hmm. you know, where somebody ghostwrites an autobiography, which really didn't come from the individual who who commissioned it. But it's still their work because yeah. it's their life and they are the ones who are dictating a lot of it. But the the writer then takes that and prettifies it and makes it good English and, you know, all those things and, mm-hmm. and uh, has a style. Whose book is it? A lot of people may not know that, that a lot of the a lot of autobiographies that you see out there on the shelves of celebrities were not written by that person. That person probably sat down with a with a writer who over the course of many hours in interviews and they they approved the the you know the the drafts and they made changes and, and things but they didn't put word to paper but it may say Michelle Obama or I'm, she, she may not be one like that who did yeah. that but I mean it may say so and so's life you know my life by so and so yeah so 
it's a it's, it's I would say that's collaborative a collaborative work because you know it couldn't have happened without their participation that they provided the life although you can write a biography of someone without their participation but they provided the words they uh, you know they 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 provided the basis the scenarios. for the words yeah yeah so in that sense they're also author um but but can can you have an artist or an author or creator who's non-living and that's really an interesting question and i know that people including like many catholic people uh, who are sincere in their faith come down on both sides of this issue. I, I know like I've had this conversation with Thomas Sanuro before where he feels like, you know, machine learning and uh, uh, algorithms or AIs can be considered to be artists or creators um, or at least, and at least sub creators in a way that we're kind of like sub creators from, from God. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, that's hard because it's like, especially with, with artwork, it's like, uh, I I would be hard pressed to say. Mm. I mean, it's not really a soul. It's not really intelligence, but it is self learning and self changing. So it can be creative, and that's in the sense of it can do things based upon what it has learned, but From maybe us. not any initial new thought. Right. It it may be that it is a creator in in so far as. It is leaning on on the creativity of human beings. You know, it, it, yeah. it did not create itself. And therefore, the people that created it, you know, are the ultimate, ultimate creators, source yeah. of its creativity. Uh, but it is a sub creator. That might be true. You mentioned writing. There's another article. Uh, we're gonna link. I'm gonna link several articles from here, including a couple that talk to you about how you can use these different uh, systems. But one of these articles uh, called "The Great Fiction of AI" from The Verge. Uh, the subtitle: "The Strange World of High-Speed Semi-Automated Genre Fiction." Now, there's this world that I didn't wasn't aware of of uh, independent authors, and these are people who we used to call them self-published, but that has a a bad taste of like vanity press, like someone who, uh, you know, uh, had had a big ego and print and print printed a bad book because no one would would buy it from them. No publisher would publish it. Uh, that that's less so these days. It's that uh, like Amazon has made it very easy for people to publish books without having to go through the major publishing houses. Uh, and so you have these folks who are out there, independent authors, and there's there's a genre where or a, a niche where they they pump out a lot of books very quickly. Um they, and they profi- yeah, they they have this they profile this one author and she's in a very small uh very niche genre, uh detective witch, you know, genre, uh, uh fiction, Dressing. okay. That's a very di- that's a very niche genre. Uh and her audience, she and she has this particular audience uh, for her books and she has promised them she would turn out a novel Every nine weeks. Wow. Which like now, folks, you got to realize in the regular publishing world, like if you have a favorite author who's writing a series of books, if they if they turn out a book a year, that's that's a pretty regular schedule. Uh, I, I, I really enjoy the works of uh, Mark Greeny, uh, who, you know, he's a, he's a big time, uh, you know, military thriller author. Uh, his Gray Man series comes out every year in February, like clockwork. You know, there are others like, say, George R. R. Martin, who do not come out like clockwork and take years <laughs> to produce the next book. But yeah, now you get these uh, these these indie authors who are expected to turn out a book every nine weeks. And uh, and she talks about how how difficult that is in, in other they interview others, too, and how she uses uh, generative AI to help her write the books. Um, to to get past the uh, uh, um, writer's block, to come up just deadline times, yeah. yeah, descriptions. You know, she says that you know for her part, she has made herself a promise to only use it uh, to streamline things. Um, how does she say she would use it for just for inspiration, no cutting and pasting it, the prose that it develops, that it that it generates, um, and that might be her. But that's not necessarily um, everyone. And in fact, if you go on Amazon, you'll find plenty of these novels that have been 
churned out by like entirely by an AI, uh, which you can tell because these things, again, are not that sophisticated yet. But it makes you wonder, like, is this good for us? Is it what, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks literature should all be high literature and we should all, you know, uh, have our noses in the air as we read our books. Uh, I have plenty of fiction that I read that is, you know, pulp or whatever. Um, but is it's is that does this go a step too far? What do you think? Well, one of the things I was interested in reading in that article was where the author actually came to the point where she said, I am no longer dreaming about writing. I am no longer feeling that creative urge because it somehow has slipped away from me. And so she that's when she came back and put real severe restrictions on herself to say, you know, I'm not... You know, I'm going to limit this and I'm going to take my words, feed them in, come back and say re- reiterative because she said she felt like she was losing her creativity there. Interesting. And one of the pitfalls, too, of, of these AIs is they can only output what they've learned. So unless, you know, so if you're writing in, a, in an area or a genre that has a lot of other a lot of writing already in that area, like, say, magical realism you know uh, fantasy sure but if you if you get into a particular niche a particular sort of thing it's going to come out with some weird stuff uh, that really doesn't bear resemblance to you you know the what you might expect yeah i thought that was funny too where where she was talking about how she had th- she's got magic in her stories mm-hmm. but because of the what has been learned by the AI, when it would come out with it, they would talk about taking their their swords out of their hilt and reseeding them and stuff. She said, I don't have swords in my my world, but they assume because it's magic, they're going to put swords in there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I guess she's um, in uh, it's, it's sort of a, what is it? Magical realism. So magic in the real world we live in. Uh, and yeah, there aren't a lot, a whole lot of swords in those, in that sort of, uh, uh, story, but because Chicago, yes, a, uh, one of my favorites is the Dresden files. Um, right. But although there are swords, but, um, yes, there are (laughs) the, uh, but it it doesn't know what to do with that sort of thing. And so it, yeah, it could, it, it, it's still not quite the same and, uh, it's fascinating. And I would, I really recommend reading these articles, uh, because it's a fascinating look, and I, 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 I kind of want to say I want, I want people to have access to these tools, but I don't want them to become so used that that this is the that that we rely on AI to produce this stuff that it becomes like AI generated junk food. Uh, yeah. I, I, there's still a craft. This is a science. That, that the AI is involved in, but there's still a craft. There's an art to this that the I just creativity, don't, we yeah. don't want to lose that. You don't want to, you know, although there is nothing un, new under the sun, Horatio or, or whoever it was, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's still, there's, there's a, a creativity in the human spirit that learns to make new things in a new way that mm-hmm. I'm afraid that this would, if, if it were overused, could suppress. And there's something about this, the spark of truth and beauty in us that flows from the image of God that lives in us, in, in our heart. And especially if, as, as a Christian, we we look at that idea as God's own creativity flowing out from us. And the, a computer can't do that, Can't ha- doesn't have that spark. And I don't think these things necessarily, they can show truth and beauty insofar as they reflect what they've learned from us. Right. But it's always, it's going to be secondary and removed from the first person truth and beauty that we are discovering and displaying in the world through this. So through our work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's um, I'm okay with authors having various tools to use to help them write books, especially if it means my favorite authors can get out their books faster. <laughs> uh, but I don't want these to to become a crutch uh, that right. that gets used to produce lots of junk, and especially junk that clogs up the marketplace so that you can't find the really well crafted stuff that's out there. Uh, it's very interesting uh, all this. And as much of a science fiction fan as I am, and I have read so many things over my years, 
in in AI, be, you know, becoming self-aware and all of these things, there's there's a part of me that says, no, that's still part. That is fiction. It, that part can't happen. Right. You know, you because it, it, there's no soul involved. There's yeah. not a... Uh, a, a a granting of a soul through God, so you know I, it's all a lot of fun to read, but you know there's a sticking point. <laughs> Data is still a walking talking toaster, and that's oh, just, but uh, he's still my favorite character. He and Spock are still my favorite characters. <laughs> well, at least Spock is a flesh and blood person, so we give him that. But yeah, yeah, that's I, true. I like I like Data, but he's he's a fun toaster. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> he's a um, Cylon. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the Cylons are scary toasters. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like there's, I think we've been, and this came up in our discussion of that Google engineer who claimed that their AI Mm. had had become self-aware. And I think that as, as it was said in some of those articles, science fiction has conditioned us as a society to start to think, to assume that AI will do this, that AI can do this, that it's inevitable that AI will become self-aware and become computers on its own. And Skynet. Yeah, right, right. Or, you know, they'll either be friendly like Data or homicidal like Skynet. And and it's like, I don't know that we're going to ever have either. And maybe that's for the best. Uh, maybe humans should remain um, alone at the top of the, of the sentience heap. Yeah, and like war games, I mean, you really need the human decision. Yeah. That's got to be there. The human element. Yes, that was last week's discussion about um, autonomous weapon systems. <laughs> Where we, that I was missed a, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that we talked a lot about. Uh, so, I mean, we've kind of been on this kick talking about AI and, uh, you know, in various ways. And, uh, yeah, the, the, it, there's always going to be a human in the loop uh, because it's fundamentally... <sighs> It's we are fundamental to at least this world, uh, you know, I mean, this depending on if there's intelligence in other planets, that's a whole nother discussion for Jimmy Akin's mysterious world. But at least for our world, fundamentals are, are um, fundamentals. Humans are fundamental to the way things are here, the way things are done here, I guess is what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, it's uh, keep us in the loop. Yeah. <laughs> So very good. Uh, it was a good discussion. So, folks, if you have thoughts and opinions on this and if, if you get a chance to use uh, any of these AI generators, we'd love to see your work. So you could actually post them in our Discord community at uh, sqpn.com slash Discord. Throw them in the uh, Secrets of Technology channel there and show us what works you create in collaboration with an AI. Uh, I'll throw some of mine in there that uh, I I've, I've, uh, did for the, in preparation for this show. Um, and let us see what you do. But also give us your opinions. What do you think about these topics, about AI and creativity and human beings uh, as part of that? So love to hear from you. All right. Uh, before we move on to our next segment, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the Secrets of Technology, including Joshua P., Cole S., Matthew D., Father Joseph S., and Petru. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Technology in all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give, and all of our sponsors, all of our patrons are not AI. They're actual human beings, so uh, the, that, that's very important. All right, let's move on to talk about some headlines. So one thing we talked about a while ago on this show is dark patterns. Pat, you you familiar with dark patterns? Uh, no, I, I and I didn't get a chance to to dive into that article. So let me quickly recap what dark patterns are. Dark patterns are uh, the ways that certain like websites or or businesses or other um, even you know, um, non-websites, just software, use ways to kind of nudge us to do to taking an action that the the maker or the controller of that website or whatever it is want us to do. So, for example, every time you see a pop-up and there's a big button that says, uh, do this thing, and it's clearly the thing that they want you to do, and then the the other option to not do that thing is very tiny and small and written in very light type below it. That's a dark pattern. So dark patterns are ways that they use to manipulate us into taking a particular path and or taking particular action uh, in software. And there's a great website. Um, uh, what is it? Dark patterns. 
uh, .org, I think it is, that gives all the examples. Let me see here. Deceptive dot design. That's what it is. So if you check out deceptive dot design, you'll see all kinds of examples of dark patterns. And they even have the Hall of Shame, which is really a lot of fun to go through because you'll recognize different ones there. So anyway, the article that we're that brought up for this headline Amazon has agreed to drop dark patterns that it's been using in Europe for people who wanted to cancel Amazon Prime. And uh, they've agreed to simplify the process required for canceling its Prime membership subscription service across its sites in the European Union, on desktop and mobile, um, and because there's been a lot of complaints from consumer protection groups. Um, yeah, I mean, that. It's good to see that the EU has taken some action here because um, it can, it can become a problem now. If you're if you're a relatively savvy, you know, use computer user, you can work your way through it. But there are lots of people who, uh, especially like you know older folks who just are not comfortable with technology, who just have a hard time navigating these interfaces. In fact, not even that much older. Uh, Melanie was having my wife Melanie was having trouble today trying to work through um, the our. The the kids, the pediatricians, our pediatricians website is just full of these weird flows that it it really feels like a dark pattern designed to not keep you from bothering them because we need forms for camp for the kids and that sort of stuff. And it's like we had these specific questions and it was like it was it was hidden, like the the, the place to go. And it was just such a she was just having such tr- uh, trouble. And I had to take okay just stop. Let me look at your computer and walk you through the through, through the process. And uh, it's unnecessarily difficult and, and sometimes intentionally so. So, um, yeah, they, they said that the cancellation process was prim- previously a multi-layered friction-filled cancellation dance and it has been simplified to a two-click cancellation process. I see this all the time with my older clients where the, I, they, I've been called in to help them cancel X, Y, or Z and a lot of things you can sign up on a website and there's no way to cancel it via a website. You mm-hmm. must call them and you get these runarounds and retention. It, it's really awful yeah. because mm-hmm. it means that they lose money. They lose their stress. They're really upset. And, and then of course there's all the scams that are out there telling them that they need to go do this type of stuff and they're not real. Right. You know? And so it's, it's a real serious issue. Yeah, I mentioned several times before I use a service called privacy.com to create um, alias or proxy credit cards. So it's connected to my bank account, but I I can use the, these are like a special like numbers. It's, it's got the credit card number and, and expiration and the CVV code. And what I can do is I can set it up to be used only in one particular place and it can have limits of dollar amount or time or whatever. And the great thing about it is if I'm trying to, if I want to cancel a service and it's way too much hassle to cancel, I just can't kill the card. <laughs> they can't charge me for it anymore. Uh, well, I have heard of situations where people said, well, my card's expired. It's no problem. But the bills keep mounting up. And I've had a couple of people get things like they're going to be threatened to take it to a collection agency. That would be it for something like, yeah, that's, that's like, a, like a service, a subscription service or something like that. Right, where you're, exactly. Where you're getting yeah. a service, yeah. Yeah, not a uh, product because once you've got it, it's it's done. Right. But it would be a subscription type thing. Well, they said, well, I, or, or a membership. Membership, And they yeah. said, well, we'll just let it cancel. And, I, and, and somebody else said, no, I've gotten some, you know, dunning notices because uh, I haven't paid my bill for X amount of time. Yeah, uh, gyms are an example of this in the real world, like where you, you sign up for a gym membership and it becomes – in fact, there was a famous episode of Friends, I think it was, uh, where they the uh, Joey and um, Chandler wouldn't – I think it was them – wouldn't cancel their gym membership because they always had a, a beautiful girl who was the one you had to go to to cancel. And she'd be all like, oh, don't you want to keep coming to the gym? And like, you know, don't you want to look buff and strong? You know, that it, I mean, that's the sort of things. Like anyone who's ever had to can- try to cancel a cable service or oh, something like that, yeah. they're the worst. Oh my gosh, they're the worst. I had to, I remember when I switched from, from Comcast to Verizon years ago, and it was just so, such a hassle. I, I hate to do it again. 
What's funny is just this week I had a, a copy of uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction. No, it was uh, uh, Analog, Analog uh, magazine yeah. from several years ago. And there was an, a short story called Retention. And it's this whole thing about somebody calling in to say they want to cancel the subscription and all this type of thing. And it goes round and round and it ends up being the person who is, you know, calling to cancel is really an AI is just the, the remnants of a person left over in, in, uh, in a, in an automated home and they have no way of canceling the service because they never get to the, the, the clinch line of yes. Okay. Well, you can cancel. Oh, wow. It is hilarious story. Yeah. Two AIs battling it out in opposite directions. Exactly. And, And it never resolved. (laughs) <laughs> That's, that is funny. That is funny. Um, so our next headline is uh, another interesting one. This one has to do with smart homes. And the headline, it's uh, this is from Cornell University that has done a study, and they found that smart thermostats, you know, like your Nest or Ecobee or other ones like that, smart thermostats are inadvertently straining the electric power grids. Um, and what they did was they uh, examined, they did a study of winter u- power use, um, and they found that um, in the winter, a lot of these thermostats are turning on the heat at like 6 a.m. just before people get, you know, waking up. And uh, that's causing a peak demand on the on the electric grid and causing problems. Peak demands are bad. And uh, what they found is uh, that most people, when they install a smart thermostat or get one installed because um, a lot of times these are being installed for them by utilities and stuff. Uh, they don't, they don't know how to program them. They're too complicated. Even now, even the, the ones that have an app that you can uh, get into, they're still too complicated. And so they're all set to the defaults and the defaults are usually things like 6am and you know, they're the same one on every thermostat, you know, your neighbor, everyone in town, that sort of thing. And so it's causing peak demands. Uh, now, I should point a couple of uh, the things that, that that are true for this. It's mainly a problem because of electric heating. Uh, so many of us in the Northeast, like here in, in uh, New England, most people don't have electric heat. They have oil or gas heat still, um, just the, the way it works here. Um, and, but it, I'd also point out, it's, this would also be a problem in the summer with air conditioning. It's the same problem, just different directions. Um, but... Uh, it's a really a problem with people being able to program their smart home stuff. It's still too complicated. Pat, do you have a uh, smart thermostat in your home or you still get the old fashioned uh, kind? We have an upstairs and a downstairs uh, unit. The one downstairs is a smart thermostat that was, uh, that we subsidized by our electric company. And the one upstairs is an older kind of a programmable, you know, one. Mm-hmm. That's the one I have problems trying to get it reset after a power failure because I'm a techie and everything I go through and try and do and I come back and it's wrong again. (laughs) And, and so it's, it's like, I understand my, my, my clients just can't figure this stuff out, especially if there's an app. I've had a couple of people that couldn't get cable service or couldn't get uh, a ring doorbell or something like that because they don't have a smartphone. Right. And and they've had to go out and buy an iPad or something like that just to deal with this stuff and have me come over and set it up. Right. Right. Yeah. But even even for those of you, know, for those of us who are techies, you know, this stuff is not necessarily even straightforward. Like it, the, the stuff the, the the nests and Ecobees now are are miles above the old programmable thermostats. That's for sure. I mean. When I was a kid, we had the old Mercury one where you just turn it hot or cold, hot or cold. You know, I mean, my dad would be always like, stop turning it. <laughs> turn it down. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, then, but then they had the, pro- the electronic programmable ones, but they were more of an analog electronic programmable. They weren't, you know, fully digital like they are now. But even these new digital interfaces, they're not good. I mean, they just like the, the, the nest, just to get into the nest, it takes me like five steps and it's slow. And, uh, you know, it, it kind of frustrates me a little bit because when I was a, when I was younger, when you had the old Mercury ones, 
you can walk over and turn it. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Now you can, you know, you have to have the thing, the app, open up, unlock your phone. Uh, you know, you can still walk over and turn it. I mean, I, I should point out, you can still walk over and change it. But programming these things, it's still bad. And a lot of this um, home automation stuff is still not good enough. It's still not mainstream. Uh, you know, I... I just got a few new. We're gonna we're gonna do another um, smart home episode where we'll talk about you know update on some smart home stuff. But I got a few new smart home things in, and it it took me way longer than it should have to set up a few things. Like I got water leak sensors, and I got a a, a motion a vibration sensor. Uh, I I got I set it up so that every time the delivery box out front my by my front door opens, I get an alert, which is kind of cool. Except when the kids play with it, and then my phone's going go explodes with uh, notifications, <laughs> but. It's a whole nother problem, but it's just, it was way too much trouble to, you know, too hard to set these things up. Even and for techies, even, even for, for techies. techies, right. There's not enough thought being put into the interfaces. That's a big issue. Well, and none of them are standard. I mean, it's like there's every app, every company is different in the way that they present it or they display it or they set it. Mm-hmm. And Google's probably the better of the ones out there that I've had to deal with. Yeah. But still, uh, you know, when when I when I have to go out and set up somebody's home uh internet system that's using uh the Google Mesh Theirs is better than some of the others I've tried to set up, but still oh, wow. it's, it's, you know, yeah. I have, I've, I've had to go back and reset things and try again because it didn't work the first time. I hope that comes you know. to the nest stuff because those, that has not been as good. They need to really improve the nest stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> Even just setting up like the nest smoke detectors. I, I, there was once uh, one that I had that I just could not get it to, to be recognized by the app. It works. As a smoke detector, so if smoke goes off, it but it's not connected to the app, so it doesn't have all of the smart functions, like being able to remotely silence and all this sort of stuff. That was the whole point of it. Um, and I ended up, I ended up just totally re, like resetting it, taking it down, taking the the battery out, I guess, and starting all over again. Yeah, yeah. just resetting the thing to factory and starting it. But even then, it's too much hassle. So I I agree, and so. These things have bigger implications, which is it's causing grid problems. And so maybe because it's causing those bigger problems, it'll be enough to get these companies to start to fix it. So that, uh, you know, so it's not just a, well, if some non-techies are having problems programming, it's no big deal. No, it is a big deal because it's causing problems to these big utilities. Uh, So um, interesting to, to think about. Maybe there's a whole new industry of people uh, that have jobs that do nothing but go out and pl- and program people's smart home stuff. <laughs> well, there is. And in fact, uh, one of our sponsors for uh, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is Aaron Ferguson, Electric on Automation. I mean, his job is he's he does home automation. He goes from, you know, oh, now, the, I, yeah. they're usually on the higher end, of course. But there could be people who do, you know, just regular, you know, um, what's the the. The you know the or you know the tech support so tech to speak. support mama nerd sort of tech support sort of stuff where you go to people's homes that just well, help I'm average doing folks. a lot of it but I should, <laughs> there, there's not very any more than me <laughs> right right yeah maybe it's a, a nice business for someone to to get into if they would if they're interested in that sort of thing they like people and helping people with that sort of thing. Uh, speaking of the electric power grid, our last headline is uh, I thought this was interesting um, and timely. Uh, so it says a 1500 Tesla Powerwall owners have already joined a new virtual power plant in California. I say timely because Tesla put my solar panels back on my roof today after being down for oh. for, for over a month. Yeah. I uh, wow. we had to take them down in order to repair the roof. Uh when they put them up a few years ago, they actually damaged my roof and it was a huge thing and we ended up having to have a settlement and I had to have leaks. my whole roof redone. Yeah, there were leaks and uh, I'm glad that we're nearing the end of this suck. <laughs> uh, hopefully they're up there and they're, they didn't re-damage the roof, putting them back up. <laughs> whole nother, whole nother conversation for another uh, episode of something. Uh, but this is interesting because, so the Tesla Powerwall is a battery. Basically, it's like the battery that they put in the cars, but it's a battery that hangs on the wall of your house and you charge it and then your house can run off of it. Um, you can use it as a ba- as a backup to your house's power. So if the grid goes out, you can run off the battery. If you have solar, uh, solar panels, the panels can charge it and 
you know, run off of the run off the battery, you know, when the at night when the panels are not getting electricity, that sort of thing. So there's an interesting aspect to it where they've they a lot of these power walls have way more capacity than the homes use. They they're storing all this energy, but it's just sitting there. So utilities have come up with this idea, along with Tesla, to create virtual power plants. And what these are are basically distributed batteries, distributed energy storage systems that they that are smart and communicate to a central place that they can draw on when there's peak demand. Just we were talking about like peak demand. So for example, there was like these rolling blackouts in California last year, I think it was, or the year before, during the summer when, you know, there was so much demand on the on the grid that they had to turn parts of it off because they just didn't, they couldn't provide enough power. Yet they realized it was all this power just sitting unused in all, a lot of these, the batteries backups, these, especially in the power walls. Um, so they have, uh, they said on June 22nd, Tesla invited about 25,000 Pacific gas and electric customers with power walls to join the virtual power plant. And they, they had more than 3000 expressed interest in enrolling and they started the program, a pilot program with 1,500 customers officially in the, pro- in the program. And you think, how much power could that possibly generate? Well, actually quite a lot. Um, they said that the with an average of two power walls per customer, the VPP, virtual power plant, most likely already has a 13 megawatt load capacity. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> and uh, they eventually say that power wall owners can eventually receive $2 per kilowatt hour that they send back to the grid during emergency events, which is a good bit of money. When you when you have solar plants, uh, solar p- p- panels, when you generate excess electricity, you, the, the uh, electric companies are required to buy it back from you as a credit on your on your uh, power bill. Uh, so um, but two dollars is actually pretty good. I'm pretty sure I, I think I didn't actually look it up what what we're getting here in Massachusetts, but I think two dollars is pretty good. So what do you think, Pat? Is this uh Something you would oh. do with this in, uh, encourage you to get something like a power wall? Uh, probably not us at our age in our in our place. Yeah. But I could see where you know somebody that um, has uh, a lot more invested in in solar power or in in these power walls that it sounds good because I know other people that do have a situation like you're talking about where they they're selling their electricity back to the to the city or to their wherever they're living. And so this is an extension of that. And I think it's a great idea. It just, yep. it's not going to turn me at this right. moment in my life. Yeah. Not for, it's not for everybody, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is what, one of the benefits of our solar system is we, in the summer, we generate way more electricity from our panels than we'll use. So we build up this huge credit. So we, we pay nothing for electricity in the summer. We do pay a lease on the panels, uh, but we still, less than half of what we were paying for electricity in the past. But then we build up this huge credit that we then work off through the winter when there's less daylight, of course. So we're not, we're generating less electricity. Uh, and so it's, it balances out. But um, I love this idea. If it, we don't actually have a battery backup system with our solar, but I would love to have a battery backup right now. I have a generator that I have to haul out if the power goes out and manually plug, you know, the fridge into and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I've always thought it would be a really great idea to have a battery backup on the solar system. Oh yeah. Um, to, to do that sort of thing. But, and I like the idea of those batteries being useful for the whole grid. You know, the solar panels are already a way of generating power for the grid. This is another way of of everyone working together to provide power to the grid without having to centralize all of our power generation. So I kind of like it. Yeah. So, all right. So that does it for our headlines. Uh, so let's go to our picks of the week. And Pat, let's hear from you. What is your pick this week? Well, it's similar to one that I think I talked about somewhere around a year ago, uh, taking old computers and making them something still useful. And uh, the previous one I did was something called Cloud Ready, which tried to make a PC, uh, I don't think it ever came out for Mac, but uh, to turn it into a something like a Chromebook which would run the Chrome browser and uh, be uh, uh, that platform. Well, Google has actually now come out with their own OS Flex, 
which is Google's way to turn a PC into a Chromebook. And the only thing that I've found that it can't do so far, and I've, I've put one through its paces on a couple of machines, it can't run Android apps. And okay. so there are some things that it, it doesn't have a Play Store that you can go get an Android app to run X, Y, and Z. So, for instance, there's a version of Zoom that you can run in the browser. There was on the real Chromebooks, you could download the Zoom that ran on Android and run that when you can't hear because that it's strictly just the, the web-based version. They did have a Chrome-based version before, but they announced this week that they are no longer going to support the Chrome-based um, extension to run Zoom. It, you oh. have to just run it in the browser and uh, because they're, they don't have the Play Store Android version available. Right. It, well, there was something called... Um, something PWB, something web interface or something, but uh, PWA, I think it was, powered web apps. They they do not have that for OS Flex where they will, you can run those on a, on a real Chromebook. But uh, basically I was, you know, I can install LastPass, I can run Chrome, I can run uh, Google Docs, I can run the Microsoft uh, Office Suite uh, from the website and open up, you know, Microsoft Word documents, Excel documents, etc. I can install Dropbox, I can use Google Drive, you know, there's a lot of stuff available that most people... uh, you know, could could get some value out of an older machine, especially old laptops, uh, and and still, you know, be something that's familiar as opposed to dropping back to a Linux, which I, I like Ubuntu and I like some of the others, but it's a little far for some of my, my older people. Mm. But a Chromebook, you know, works for a lot of them. Yeah, and this will work on uh, older PCs and Macs, so it'll it'll work on both. Which yeah, I haven't nice. tested out the Mac one yet, but I would yeah. like to do that next uh, yeah. because rather than running Linux on the Mac, I think this would be the way to go for most of my clients, you know. Yeah, we've talked a lot about, you know, re- reusing, getting new life out of older computers and keeping them running. Um, and well, often that's been, you know, we've talked about um, various flavors of Linux and um you know, Mint, uh, Linux Mint, I think it is. Uh, yeah, Ubuntu it, Mint and yeah. Cinnamon Mint, and there's a whole bunch of different flavors of right. it. Right, but it's all Linux, which means that there's at, at some point it's all got that Linux trickiness that you've got to get over at some at some point. Whereas, um, yeah, Chrome OS is just it's if you know how to use a web browser, you pretty much got it. And so, so that's there's, the lack of Zoom is a big. Is a is a big hit though. That's, a native Zoom. I mean, as yeah. I say, you can use the web version of, and for for my clients, that's fine. But for people yeah. who are needing to have all the tools that the 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 uh, the full blown one, yeah, that's not right. enough. And but they're not going to be the Chromebook users anyway. Yeah, your your granddaughter has a Chromebook that uh, she's when that changes, that the whole the Zoom thing changes, it's going to prevent her from using that Chromebook for her classes, her online classes. So where we, she's going to have to be, I got her a Mac mini, so she's going to, she can use that, but um, she's not as mobile as she once was. Uh, and that's, that's a real shame because otherwise it, it works. The Chromebook, the Chromebook is, you know, several years old. It still works. Just. I wonder if we could install Flex OS on that old Chromebook. I wonder if it says PC and Macs. I'm curious whether you could do it to uh, the installer would work on a Chromebook. That would be something we'd have to consider. That would be. It uh, probably won't knowing Google, but, you know, (laughs) it would be nice if it did. Yeah, it would be. It would save Uh, a lot of things going into the, the landfill. Right. On the other hand, you know, it will, it'll, you could, there are a lot of old computers that would work just fine. Stuff that you can get for a pretty decent price. Um, well, I've got this, this, this older uh, laptop that one of my clients had that's only got four gigs of memory and it's, mm-hmm. it's several years old and it's got a real small hard drive. But the, the Chrome Flex OS runs really nice on it. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I'm going to have to dig into that a little more. I've got, uh, I've, I don't have any old laptops other than the Chromebook that that uh, or old computers. Other than the, actually, you know, I've got an old 2010 era iMac here 
I don't really have room to put it up anywhere. That's the problem. Um, yeah. But that that might work pretty well. I also have a 2019 iMac, um, but the, which worked great. I just have no room to put set them up anywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you might have to farm that out to somebody else to do the the research for you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So my uh, pick this week is a very simple little piece of uh, software called Mission Control Plus. And it does one thing very well. Um, so Mission Control is a function within uh, Mac OS where you can have certain gestures to bring up either all of the windows uh, that are open on your computer and all the apps uh, tiled across the screen in front of you so you can pick from them, or all the windows in one app you can uh, find and, 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 you know, work, select and work between them. Um, what uh, what Mission Control Plus does is very simple. It it gives you keyboard navigation and shortcuts. So uh, one thing it does is it, it will put a little um, close button on all the windows so that when you hover over the window, you'll see this close button pop up and you can close the window from Mission Control. That's not something that Apple had built into it previously. Uh, it also will give you, uh, I'm trying to pull it up here, uh, keyboard shortcuts that you can use when you're in uh, the uh, mission control area, uh, things like quit the quit that app that's highlighted, uh, close close window, minimize window, open a window, that sort of thing. So it's it's a very simple little bit of productivity that you're doing. It's not it's not complex. It doesn't have extensive. Uh, that's it. That's that's all the features. But it's a neat little feature that makes using that mission control feature in uh, on the Mac. Uh, just a little bit easier, so uh, I like oh, cool. it. Cool, and it's uh, it's nine bucks if you buy it outright. But if you use Setapp, the software subscription service, it's included, so no additional cost if, if for that. So another reason to subscribe to Setapp. Uh, I've become I was skeptical of Setapp at first. I've become a big fan. I have a lot of software that I use from Setapp. Yeah, so it's cool. worth worth the price. Very good. So that should do it for us this time. We would love to hear what you think of anything we discussed today. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash technology or the StarQuest Facebook page at facebook.com slash StarQuest Media or send an email to technology at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You'll find links from our discussion and our picks of the week on our show notes at sqpn.com. Remember to like each episode of Secrets of Tech where you find it on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter where we're at sqpn. Leave us comments. We'd love to hear from you. We'd like to thank James for his research research assistance in this episode. One of these days I'm going to say that right. Research assistance. <laughs> I stumble <laughs> over yeses. every time. I need to rephrase that, but thank you, James. Until next time, Pat Scott, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology. It's always fun to be here. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of technology on StarQuest. <laughs>